And now this morning we have the opportunity to come again to a time in Genesis. And as we do come to this passage this morning, I find it necessary because of my personal experience to remind us of something. When I preach through the books of Jonah and Nahum, particularly in Jonah, I had to battle a tendency in my own heart, my own mind, to kind of mentally default to the Sunday school understanding. Um, Everybody knows the history of Jonah. Everybody knows the history of Noah. Everybody knows the story of David and Goliath. And I found myself sinking into that trap of, oh yeah, I know this story. And then letting myself kind of mentally relax and maybe tune out a little. And honestly, if we were reading or preaching from or analyzing a normal book, that would be fine. I don't have to pay rapt attention for the thousandth time when we read uh, Mr. Brown Can Moo by Dr. Seuss. We have read that enough times with my children that I don't have to pay a whole lot of attention to know that I'm not missing something. One reading is the same as the next. But when we come to the words of Scripture, we can't handle it with that kind of careless attitude because we're not dealing with a static, lifeless resource. And before I get too far on that, I'm not saying that the original message of Scripture changes, just as our God does not change in the same way His revelation to us does not change. But there is a reason why we can read the same passage 999 times, but then on the thousandth time through, it's like the light bulb goes on and it makes total sense to us. It hits our heart and our soul and something has changed. And that is because Scripture is literally God talking to us. It is His Word to His people. By the work of the Holy Spirit, God takes and applies to our hearts in our context the very same words that were written to people thousands of years ago. Hebrews 4 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. As we approach passages that may be familiar to us this morning, my caution is that we don't take for granted what we're going to find inside. While the words have not changed, neither have the original meanings, God's original message to the original audience still is what we're looking for and what we're trying to understand, but there remains the application of these words by God's Spirit. The spirit that we are told would teach us all things and bring to our remembrance all that Christ has said to us. Do not discount the spirit's role in applying God's word to your heart as we dive into this well-known story of the great flood and the building of Noah's Ark. We won't get all the way through the flood today, but uh, we will get to kind of the, the apex of the flood So I would ask if you would turn to Genesis chapter 6 and 7. We're going to be 6, 9 through the end of chapter 7. And if you're wanting to get your finger in there, 
Um, that's the first half of that flood account. And by way of background, the first few verses of chapter 6 says, The Lord saw that the wicked, wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That is the world in which Noah lived, a world of increasingly pervasive and eventually total wickedness. And that's where we join the story at 6, verse 9. So I'd ask that you'd follow along with me. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it, the length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old, and the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark, and Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all of the fountains of the great deep burst, burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. 
On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kind. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is God's word. The thrust of last week's passage was to drive home both the wickedness of Noah's world and the despicable nature of our own sin. And today we come to the treatment of that sin, how God treats sin and his judgment upon it. We've come to another one of these title sections. No longer are we in the generations of Adam, as we saw in chapter 5, but the generations of Noah. And we need to understand Noah The very first thing that is said reiterates that background behind verse 8, that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And in our passage, we read that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. That should be familiar to you. It echoes the language of Enoch, who also escaped death, although in a much more permanent, though no less miraculous way. Neither Enoch nor Noah were perfect men. Neither of them were sinless, particularly regarding that stain of original sin that had been communicated to every descendant of Adam. No, whether Enoch or Noah or any other worker throughout Scripture or in history who was approved by God, who was regarded as righteous, these men are said to be blameless because of their orientation rather than the totality of their actions. These are Godward men, men who have called upon the name of the Lord and who have submitted themselves to him. And the reason that these men, particularly the men pre-Christ, are able to be called blameless is explained in Romans 3 by the Apostle Paul. Romans 3, starting in verse 22, it says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins 
it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. These Old Testament believers, those who were righteous before God thanks to the sacrificial system that was instituted, all of those, and what we get from Hebrews 11, all of these that were counted as righteous because of their faith, because of their faith, they're essentially saved on credit. Credit that thousands of years later, their faith would come to fruition, that the full payment of their debt would be satisfied when Christ came and settled on their behalf on the cross. No one was saved through the sacrificial system, but the faith that was demonstrated pre-Christ, God in his grace passed over those former sins and counted their faith as faith in Christ. And Noah was counted as righteous. Noah was not without sin, but he lived righteously before the Lord, walking with him, and in the course of his righteous life, God comes to Noah and lets him know that he is about to put an end to all flesh. And he gives him instructions about how to build the ark and what he is about to do. And the language of this is not the language of a local flood that is just going to wipe out the wicked people of the area and the land-dwelling creatures of that immediate region. No, this is a global flood designed for one purpose, to utterly extinguish all land-dwelling life on earth, particularly all men. While I was doing some research on this, the question was posed, why God wouldn't just send maybe a disease that would just kill mankind? leaving the rest of the animals and the like intact. But one, this would have left all of the records and artifacts and idols for Noah and his family to return to. But more convincingly, we also see throughout the creation narrative that the world, not just mankind, is cursed because of man's sin. As the pinnacle of God's creative work, the whole of creation is tied in with the fate of mankind. This narrative of the flood, I don't know if you have seen it, but it is so closely tied to the story of creation. And that's why when I was thinking of a title for this, for this message, I titled it God's De-Creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And after the creation of man on the sixth day, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now in Noah's day, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, and the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created. In this great cataclysm, God will undo what he has done. He will decreate his creation. Just as on the third day when God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear, now God said, Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which... The breath of life is under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Finally, once the flood was at its apex, it is said that God had blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the earth. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And now the world has, in a sense, 
been returned to its pre-creation state where the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God here has undone what he had done with one primary difference. While the Spirit of God would have still been over the waters, now too there was one humongous and yet tiny in the face of things, ark. This ark floating on the waters represented what would be a recreative endeavor. God would repopulate, essentially recreating the earth starting from almost square one. I think sometimes, well, I know that sometimes we're tempted because of a limited view of our own gravity of sin. That's why last week we drilled right down on the gravity and the weight and the despicableness of our sin, we are tempted to be surprised or to downplay the severity of God's judgment upon sin. We take a look at God flooding the whole earth and wiping out all of humanity and everything on the earth and go, man, that was an overreaction. No, that was an underreaction. Noah deserved to be wiped out too. We established last week that the pervasive wickedness of the world in Noah's day was the grounds for God's decision to blot out mankind in particular. I had said last week that before moving on to the divine rescue, that God would preserve Noah, that God would preserve us, his modern-day ark dwellers, we must see clearly that by our sin we also deserve to be destroyed, and that it is only by God's grace, his mighty saving arm, that we are all called out of the kingdom of darkness before he utterly destroys it. And this in the flood is what God has done. God has utterly blotted out mankind, but he has done so in a manner that he still remains true to his word. God promised Adam and Eve a seed. God promised that one day the serpent's head would be crushed even as his heel was bruised. God kept alive both the promise of the seed and the blessing that he gave both the man and the creatures of the earth that each was told to be fruitful and multiply. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in for you to keep them alive. We will get to that covenant that God makes with Noah in, Lord willing, two weeks' time. But each animal and each human couple was brought into the ark according to their kind. Again, a callback to the creation narrative where each animal was created according to their kind. God warned Noah, and by faith, Noah being warned, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir to, of the righteousness that comes by faith. That's from Hebrews 11. With nothing more, not a drop of rain, Noah set about building a boat, the likes of which the world had never seen. A boat that's so perfectly designed that even today modern ships use the exact same ratio of how it's built. 
God knows how to build a boat better than we do. And Noah finds favor with God because of his faith. God warns Noah of the impending flood. God gives Noah the instructions for the ark. Noah, in faith, builds the ark according to God's design. God brings the animals into the ark, and as the rain begins to fall, as the fountains of the deep burst forth, the Lord shut him in. Our passage this morning is at once a reminder of the unbearable wrath that is stored up by God against the wicked, as well as a reminder of the equally unfathomable faithfulness of God in preserving his people. Noah played such a tiny role. He acted faithfully according to what he was commanded. And in the scope of this great flood, Noah's role was not that large. It was our God who gave him the plans for the ark. It was our God who shut him in, and it was our God who inspired in his heart the faith for which he is commended. God, as the creator and sustainer of the universe, had every right over his creation to totally scrap it and start again. But he, in accordance with his promises, maintained his faithful remnant and bore them through this cataclysmic flood. He shielded these from the wrath he poured out upon the wickedness of the world. 2 Peter references the story of Noah repeatedly. 1 in chapter 2, verse 5, and then again in chapter 3, verse 5. In chapter 2, 5, it says, If God did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And in chapter 3, 5, The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the word of God. By means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The themes surrounding the total judgment of the world, the separation of the justified and the condemned, God's holy wrath poured out and his gracious mercy bestowed, these themes are every bit as important today as they were thousands of years ago in the times of Noah. For God even today has gathered to himself a people. Even as God tore down the world to its foundations back to pre-creation itself at the time of the flood, so too when Jesus returns he will once again tear the world down to its foundations and this time he will permanently wash all sin and evil and wickedness from the world. He will judge the wicked and this time instead of water it will be with fire. And he will again in that time preserve a righteous remnant. Though this time that righteous remnant won't see dimly looking forward to the revelation of a Messiah of the promised seed towards the one that will reconcile God and man. No, God preserves and those whom God preserves will see face to face. 
They will know Christ face to face and they will live with him and they will worship him in eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Our God is good. And that statement that we throw around so easily is something that should at once both encourage and terrify For those who are without Christ, who have not been forgiven their sins and have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the goodness of God is the very thing that will condemn them. For a good God cannot and will not coexist with evil. But for those who are in Christ, those who have confessed Him as Lord and Savior and have placed their hope in Him, that God is the reason for our hope. The goodness of God is the reason for our hope. He has saved us. Even as he shut Noah in, separating that righteous Noah from the wickedness of the world, when the time comes, God shuts his people in, separating his people from the wicked of the world. He has shut us in and will preserve us in the day of judgment that we may eternally live and worship Christ our Lord and King. As we look at the story of Noah, as we look at the total destruction of all mankind, we need to understand that this reminds us of the incredible wrath of God against all wickedness. And it is just but a fraction of the wrath of God that is stored up for the last days. We would be remiss if we weren't knowing that this flood was coming, knowing that this judgment is coming, if we weren't proclaiming it to any and all who would hear it. And it is not up up to us to save anyone. It is up to us to proclaim the truth of God's righteousness, the truth of the gospel. And it is up to God to save those whom he would save. But we have a good reason for hope. We can take a look at our lives and the wickedness that we have been saved from. We can take a look at Noah, and if you read the rest of Noah's story, We know that Noah's story doesn't turn out everything sunshine and roses. Noah, too, ended up in some very serious moral trouble. And yet in Hebrews 11, Noah is commended for his faith. And we can take a look at our lives and say, we may not be perfect, but we are pursuing a God-word life, a God-word orientation, and we are committed to following God and to acting in accordance with his word, and we will fail. And thank God that he is faithful to forgive us our sins if we confess them. So, brothers and sisters, I pray that you personally would be able to proclaim with me in the words of the psalmist David, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that when you proclaim that, that you would hear that as good news. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. 
to follow God is not to enter into a life of ease. Noah, at 600 years old, built the biggest boat that had ever been imagined. That is not a life of ease. Noah, at 600 years old, built a boat and I'm sure had people asking him, why on earth are you building a giant boat? Ridiculed by his friends and neighbors. And yet we can say, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The Lord is our portion. What he has given us is the joy of our lives. And even if we should have no other good thing on this earth, if we have the Lord, then we have what we need. And if there are any who hear this message, who would want that hope, who would like to, as Noah did, find favor in the eyes of the Lord, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord because of his faith. Trust in him in faith. Call upon the Lord and confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. For the Lord created each one of us, and if we are found in his Son, Jesus, then rather than being swept away with all of the unrighteousness, all of the wickedness of the world, then we will be found in the Lamb's book of life and we will have eternity to worship him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, you have recorded for us a piece of history that is not easy. It is not easy for us to contemplate your judgment and your wrath against sin. But Lord, we must. We must remember that you have judged sin and will judge sin. And we must remember that you are good. And so Lord, we ask that you would grant us faith. We ask that we would find favor in the eyes of you. And that we might live accordingly. That we might obey your commandments that you have given us in your word. That we might be faithful to what you have called us to do. And that one day we might be found face to face with your son Jesus might receive that commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. So Lord, take us from here with a new desire or a strengthened desire to proclaim the oncoming judgment as well as the goodness of our God to all who would hear and all who would listen, that by your grace some might be saved. And take us from here with a deepened faith, a faith in the God who would preserve for himself a people, a people as undeserving as they come, but now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We thank you for these things and pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.